look at your calendar, you'll notice that the last Wednesday night of the month, Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible class will be postponed 24 hours to Thursday night. Instead of coming on the 26th, it will be on the 27th. So uh, don't show up on the 26th and think that the rapture occurred and that somehow you got it wrong. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Every believer is a priest unto God from the instant of salvation. At that moment that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you are regenerated along with approximately 39 other things that are irrevocable. One of those things is that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are also filled with God, the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, our guide. He is the one who helps us to understand the things in God's Word, and He is the one who then uh, recalls them to our mind when it's time to apply them. We're going to be studying a lot about the importance of the Holy Spirit and His teaching ministry this morning. The way we recover that when we lose it through sin, when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, we use 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins. Now, people get odd ideas about confession. Confession simply means to admit or acknowledge something to be true. When you go to court, you commit some infraction, major or minor. You stand before the judge. You may be glad you were speeding. You might be glad you killed somebody. You might want to do it again. You might have no remorse whatsoever. Yet you stand before that judge and you say, yes, judge, I'm guilty. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You have confessed your guilt. See, that is this idea that confession means remorse, means that you feel sorry for it. All is based on some rather superficial idea that our emotions impress God. There's nothing that we can do that ever impress God. God is omniscient. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows every single sin we'll ever commit in human history and He knows the sins that we confess right now we'll probably be committing in another day or two if not this afternoon. So it doesn't impress God that you are bargaining with Him, that you are promising Him that you'll never do it again because God may know better. The issue is simply admission of guilt and we're told that God instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That is God's grace, which is the hallmark of biblical Christianity, that God has done everything for us, and we do not have to do it for ourselves. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, 
We confess our sins only to God because we are priests and have that privilege. And then we are forgiven, restored to fellowship with God, recovered the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can focus, concentrate, and learn God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much that we have a salvation based not upon works, based not upon impressing You, based not upon ritual, but based exclusively upon the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That there He paid for our sins, for every sin in human history, and that our salvation is a free gift. And we simply accept that by faith alone. Father, we thank You that with our salvation we receive the Holy Spirit, this, this unique reality that we have, unique in all of human history, that as church-age believers, we have the indwelling and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who teaches us. Now, Father, we pray that as we study Your Word, that we would be responsive to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we can concentrate, focus, and that we will have the right mental attitude when He brings these things to our attention. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the 14th chapter of John. We finished last time, or we were somewhere around verse 11 when we finished our look at John 14. In this particular chapter, we are in the middle of what is called the Upper Room Discourse. This is when Jesus was with His disciples in the Upper Room. This is where they celebrated the Passover the night before He went to the cross. Now, what has happened in the ministry of our Lord up to this time is that He has been rejected by the people. He has been rejected by the religious leaders as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so He is now changing the game plan. Not that God is changing, but that man was never informed of the fact that this would take place in human history. That there would be a new time in human history called the Church Age. In the Old Testament, when they looked forward to the coming of Messiah, they looked forward to a suffering and a reigning Messiah, and these passages were together in the Old Testament, and they didn't distinguish them. And this this brought confusion not only to the rabbis at the time, but also to Jesus' disciples. They weren't distinguishing between what we call the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The cross is the first coming, the crown is the second coming. They confused the two and conflated the two because, in fact, that's how they were, it was covered or treated in many Old Testament passages. So as Jesus is addressing His disciples on this night before He goes to the cross, He is informing them of the fact that, no, He is not coming back right away. This is not when He's establishing the kingdom. In fact, He is leaving. And He said, if I go to prepare a place for you that I will surely come again, that where I am, you may be also. And this informs the disciples and us of the fact that when Jesus ascended 40 days after His resurrection, that He indeed will return in like manner in a literal bodily return. That's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is to the earth. Now, we saw two weeks ago that there is a distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming. The rapture 
It's when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds and all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all church-age believers, those who have died in the Lord and those who are living will be instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye caught up to be with the Lord in the air. That ends the church age. Then there will be a brief transitional period before the seven-year tribulation begins. The tribulation is a time when God concludes His plan and purposes for the nation Israel, and it concludes with their complete return to the land as a regenerate people. It concludes with the battle of Armageddon and the destruction of all of Satan's forces who will be aligned under the Antichrist against the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus returns at that time to defeat the Antichrist. That's the second coming. So we must keep that distinction in mind. Now, of course, the disciples were confused about this. And in John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35, Jesus said that he would be leaving. And then he said, because I'm leaving, I give you a new command, that you are to love one another uh, as I love you. And this raised some questions in the minds of his disciples. And there are four questions that follow. First, the question from Peter, then Thomas and Philip, and then one from Judas, not Iscariot. And John, the writer of the gospel, is going to use these four questions to organize his material. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying it didn't happen this way. I'm just saying that as a writer, John is picking and choosing what happened, what took place that night. A lot more was said than what we have in the Scriptures. But John is going to arrange the material in such a way to make certain points. And I think one of the points he is making, that I'm sure he's making here, is the inability of man to understand many doctrines of Scripture apart from the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see in these questions how Jesus has made it clear time and time again that he's going to go to the cross. And yet they don't understand. They're they're just, Lord, you're leaving? Where are you going? This is the fourth or fifth time at least that we've seen Jesus refer to the fact that he's leaving. And they still don't get it. They ask questions that, that either they are the most obtuse group of 11 people ever gathered together on the face of the earth... Or John is making a point of the fact that this is why Jesus says, I'm going to give you another helper who will guide you into all truth. That there is a distinction in the first hour we're studying the Old Testament, and we will see that in the Old Testament, doctrine is given in very tangible, concrete, visual ways. And you do not have the abstract development of biblical theology in the Old Testament as you do in the New Testament. And one reason is that in the Old Testament, they don't have the Holy Spirit to teach the believers. uh, The Holy Spirit's ministry is very restricted in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, every single believer is indwelt from the moment of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. And we must understand what an incredible privilege that is that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is our teacher so that we can understand and appreciate things about God and about His Word and about His plan and purposes in history that some of the greatest Old Testament saints could not understand because they did not have the ability. That's the difference between human IQ and spiritual IQ. Human IQ may be room temperature. It may be... uh, Almost uh, single digit in some cases. But uh, 
It may not be very high. Your education, your formal education may not be much. But God in His grace has given us a, a learning process so that no believer is restricted in his ability to comprehend the Word of God. And that is the Holy Spirit. That is our spiritual IQ. The Holy Spirit is the spiritual uh, equalizer, so to speak, so that no matter what your background, no matter what your IQ, you are not limited because God the Holy Spirit is the one who enables every single believer to understand the things of God's Word. Now, just by way of review, what we have seen in this context is that there are two issues that are being addressed. The first is what it means to love as Jesus loved. And secondly, there is confusion over God's plan. Specifically, when is the kingdom coming? Now, the interesting thing that is taking place in this chapter and in what Jesus says and how John records it is that you have to think very clearly. I know it's early, it's Sunday morning. You already had your brain cells fried in the first hour. So it might be a little difficult for you to concentrate and wrap your mental fingers around this this morning. So I'm going to try to break it down. Uh, I have to do that for myself. So I assume that I have to do that for you. Every time I've gone through this chapter, in fact, in the last couple of weeks, I've I've tried to read through these verses every day in order to try to pick out the flow of thought. It's important. There is a thematic unity to these passages and to what Jesus is saying. He's not just giving one-liners, so to speak. This isn't a uh, monologue on The Tonight Show where one line has nothing to do with the next line. Jesus is clearly teaching things, and John is pulling it all together in order to help us understand some things that are going to be taking place and why they are so important and so significant. So John uses this question-answer procedure between the apostles and Jesus to develop these ideas. So we have four questioners. Peter, Thomas, Philip, and Judas, not Iscariot. And we have looked at Peter's question and answer, Thomas's question and answer, and now we are in the middle of Philip's question and answer. Third thing we're going to see in this dialogue includes what it means to love as Jesus loved. Everything that goes on in these chapters is to help us understand what it means to love as Jesus loved. And what we're seeing is it doesn't have anything to do with emotion or feeling or sentiment or any of those things. It has to do with character, specifically the character of God, that it has to do with stability that is based upon doctrine in the soul, and it doesn't have to do with the attractiveness, the lovability, the uh, kindness, gentleness, of the person loved. It has everything to do with who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So we'll learn what it means to love as Jesus loved. We'll also see the inadequacy of pre-church age knowledge despite the highest revelation of God possible. What do I mean by that? The highest revelation of God possible is Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. Jesus said no one. That means Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, 
In Isaiah 6, no one has seen God at any time. God the Father. The only begotten, the unique Son of God. He is the one who has revealed or exegeted Him. So all of these manifestations in the Old Testament were what we call theophanies. They were appearances of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, before He took on flesh through virgin conception and virgin birth. So they have the highest revelation of God possible, and they're lost. They just don't understand what He is saying, what its significance is, and they continue to say, ask questions. For example, as the second part of Thomas's answer, Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Implication, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, either not paying attention or not quite operating on all eight cylinders, says, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. So we see that he's, um, he's really not fully together. And this is why the church age, because God is doing something unique through believers in this age. We are elevated above every other believer in human history. We are given unique privileges, we are given a unique position, and we are given unique assets for the spiritual life. And for, to whom much is given, much is expected. Now as we go through this section, we have to take it very carefully. Four themes are present and are going to be interconnected through this discourse. You're going to have to pay attention as we go through this or you're going to really get lost. Because John weaves them in an almost disconnected manner and it's not till you get to the last verse that it all comes together. It's like watching a really good movie where you have three or four subplots going together, each with different characters, and you don't know how they're all going to fit until the last 30 minutes. And you have to think. I love movies like that. First thing that's present is faith, specifically faith. Specifically, faith in Christ is not merely. I left a word out there. Not merely. Uh, it's not faith. Is not merely faith in the deity of Christ. I did this early this morning. But his it's, faith is not not. It is specifically not just in the deity of Christ, but in His unity with the Father. That's the point. Faith is not just faith in the deity of Christ, but is specifically directed towards His unity with the Father. And that's in verses 9 and 10. The second thing that we'll see here is beyond the intimate unity between Father and Son, we'll see that there is a connection between Jesus' words, also called His commandments later on, His words and commandments. Don't don't think of them as two different things. There's a connection between His words and the Father's works. And that's in verses 10 through 12. Jesus will say, If you love Me, you keep My commandments. And then just so you see where we're going, that's in verse 15. And it comes out of nowhere. If you read down from 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, all of a sudden 14 says, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's prayer. The next verse, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, now we're talking about love and commandments. But verse 16 says, 
And I will ask the Father and will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Wait a minute. Verse 15 looks like it doesn't belong there at all. But he's introducing a connection. He's already talked back in 10 about the words, his words and the works of the Father. Now he's going to connect his words, the mandates, to love. Then he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And then when we get to verse 21, he's going to say, He who has my commandments, my words, and keeps them, works. He it is who loves me, love. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will... Now, New American Standard says disclose, but the idea is reveal. How is that? Who is the revealer of the Godhead? It's the Holy Spirit. See, in verse 21, we pull together words, works, love, and the Holy Spirit. But as you read through that, there look like four different strands that are completely disconnected until John pulls it together for us in that last verse. So there's going to be a connection between these. Third, personal love for God the Father is emphasized through this passage. And then the fourth theme is the necessity of the Holy Spirit for understanding truth. That's why he is called the Spirit of Truth. We cannot understand truth. By that we mean the Word of God. We have to think in terms of John's use of language. And Jesus' use of language here in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them. That's the Christian life, Christian growth. Sanctification means the process of growing to spiritual maturity. As I said in the first hour, you're all abnormal. I'm abnormal. We're born abnormal. We're born sinners. That's not what God intended. We are not at all what original man was like. Because of sin, we're all under the curse, and we are all far from the standard. So we are all abnormal. Sanctification is the process of returning to normality. How do you do it? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. He didn't say, sanctify them in truth. A good rousing chorus will sanctify them. Singing many hymns will sanctify them. Having good Christian fellowship will sanctify them. Being involved in church programs will sanctify them. Engaging in church ritual will sanctify them. Did he say that? No, he didn't. He said, sanctify them in truth, literally by means of truth. It's an instrumental dative. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So the only way to get from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood is through the Word of God. How are you going to understand it? If the disciples are present with Jesus, the highest possible revelation of God Himself, and they don't get it, how can we expect to get it? Because we have something they didn't have, and that's the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to the fifth theme that's here. Obedience to the divine mandates under the filling of God the Holy Spirit is the key to receiving greater illumination of truth and doctrine, and growing in Christ. So let's go back and look at John 14.9. John 14.9, Jesus begins Philip's answer by saying, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, 
Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, Philip's question, which is, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us, seems redundant since Jesus had just stated that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Seems a little obtuse because Philip perhaps wasn't listening. And it might even be overreaching because, as we saw last time in our study of the terminology, the concept of knowing God is associated with the millennial messianic kingdom when God had promised when the new covenant comes that everyone would know him and wouldn't be in need of a teacher anymore. So it seems as if Philip is really overstepping the bounds a little bit. But Jesus is going to say that this knowledge of God is intimately connected with knowing Him. And what we're going to see here is a really profound implication from what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I am, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Therefore, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's the question. Now, let's stop a minute and talk about what it means to believe. What we have here in the Greek is a very interesting construction. You have the question, and then there's the use of this particle. Hati, H-O-T-I. Hati has a number of different meanings, but often it is used to introduce a quote or a statement. In English, we would write it this way. Do you believe, colon, the hati would be untranslated, we would just represent it as a colon, and then we would put after it a proposition. This is what you are to believe. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, Now, why did I stop and do that? Because we live in an age when people don't, understand belief very well. Belief is always directed towards something that can be stated as a proposition. That means faith is not an emotion. It is a function of the intellect. So Jesus is challenging Philip's thinking here. And he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now he is beginning to introduce the whole concept of the Trinity, which he unfolds more and more through this discourse. Then in the next verse, Jesus says, Do you not, uh, in the next half of the verse, he says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. Literally, what he says in the Greek is the words which I am speaking to you right now, do not come from the ultimate source. I do not speak from the ultimate source of myself. Indicating that his message does not generate within himself independently of the Father, but has its ultimate source in the Father. He says, but the Father who abides in me continues to do his work. What we need to see here is that he draws a connection between what Jesus speaks and what the Father is doing. So that, 
Let's turn that around and come at it backwards. So that how you respond to what Jesus says is how you respond to what the Father does. That went right past everybody. That's a profound statement. There are so many people who talk God talk. Oh, I like God. I love God. I want to worship God. I want to get in touch with my spiritual life. Incidentally, I've noticed lately, I've struggled with this for about, I don't know, the last six or seven years, spirituality, spiritual, these terms have become such buzzwords in the 90s. And I finally realized on something I heard this last week what, that, what it is a synonym for. Emotion. Think about how when people are saying, I, I want to get in touch with my spiritual side, what they're really saying is, I want to get in touch with my emotions. When you really unpack what they're saying, think about the context and look at everything, they're wanting to get inside in touch with their emotions. So spirituality is subtly being redefined as emotion. So watch out for that. The scripture never identifies spirituality with emotion. Spirituality has to do with your relationship with God and your relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that the criterion for that, or one criteria for measuring that, is your relationship to the words of Jesus, to His commands. How you respond to the mandates of Jesus in the Scripture is exactly how you respond to God. You cannot say that I love God, but I just can't. I have trouble with what this says in this passage. If you have trouble with what this says in this passage or what anything says anywhere in the Bible, then you're saying, I've got a real problem with God. Because how you respond to the Word of God is how you respond to the person of God the Father. That's the implication here. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the work. Then we come to verse 11. Verse 11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Once again, we have the same construction we had earlier. He is saying, believe something. It should scratch out the that, put a colon after the me. Believe me. And here's the sentence. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So once again, we see that faith is related to a proposition. You believe something that can be stated propositionally. Now, there's a technical definition for proposition if you studied philosophy. A proposition is a statement that can be verified or negated. And just it's not just any statement. A question is not a proposition. A, a, um, but a declarative sentence is a proposition. It can be verified or falsified. So Jesus says we are to believe something. And the Bible is very precise about what faith is, yet most people don't understand what faith is. Faith is understanding something, first of all. We have to understand what it means, have to comprehend it. We have to take it apart, understand the terms used. We have to understand the subject and understand what is said about the subject. A proposition always has a subject and a complement. It has a subject and something that is said about the subject. So faith means, first of all, that we understand the proposition. In salvation, it is... Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sin. So that means you have to understand what we mean by Jesus. You know, a lot of people could be called Jesus, and a lot of people might talk about Jesus. And you have various world religions that give lip service to Jesus. But if you study the Bible, 
The Bible defines who Jesus is. He is undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever. He is the second person of the Trinity without beginning or end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He never changes. And He is the one who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. So next time somebody who is a cult member knocks on your door and wants to talk to you about Jesus, you have to say, well, are you talking about the Jesus of the Bible, or are you talking about some other Jesus? So it begins with understanding, and then faith is accepting it to be true. See, it's believing it to be true. Uh, think of the analogy with your income tax. And, uh, April 15th is not that far off. Some of you are already preparing for it. And when you sit down with your calculator and with your records from this last year and you start calculating all the numbers and putting everything together, sooner or later you're going to reach a figure and you're going to breathe a sigh of relief and you're going to believe, accept as true, the figures you have down on that piece of paper. And at that point in time, you may go back and check them to make sure that you didn't make a mistake. But once you are convinced that it's true, what are you going to do? You're going to stop, you're going to put your check, or just fold it up, hoping you'll get a return, and you'll put the return in the envelope and mail it off, and you will relax because you believe what you did was true. See, that's what faith is. It is accepting something to be true. It is, there, there's so much confusion today. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is accepting something to be true. So faith, then, can always be expressed toward a proposition. Or in a proposition. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Scripture says, if you want to be saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So faith is always expressed in a proposition. Again, biblical faith is never in itself. It's not faith in faith. How many times do you hear people say, well, I, it, it'll just work out. I, I, some, it, it'll work out. I, I just know God's that way. What, what they're doing is they're not believing the Bible. They're just believing themselves and their opinion. It's faith in faith. But the Scripture says that faith is not in faith. Faith is in the statements of Scripture, the promises of God's Word. Faith is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. If faith is directed towards a proposition, emotions are responses to that. But they are not directed towards a proposition. Faith is part of what you do with your mind, not what you do with your emotions. So faith is not a feeling. And it's so common today, we always make this mistake and we say, well, how do you feel about things? When what we're really asking is, what do you think about things? And we need to discipline ourselves to watch our, our terminology. Faith is not a commitment. Faith does not mean commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Faith means to accept something as true. For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. Faith is not a commitment. It is accepting something as true. Faith is not a work. Faith in and of itself is non-meritorious. It has no merit or value in and of itself. What you believe, the object of your faith, has all of the merit. When we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, it is His work on the cross that has all of the merit. It is not our faith. When we read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The it is the whole package of salvation through faith. That's why the it is neuter. Faith is a 
feminine noun. Salvation is a masculine noun. The reason the neuter is used is it refers to the whole package. The salvation by grace through faith is the it. The whole package is not of works. Faith is not a work. Saving faith has as its object the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid it all. The last thing Jesus said before he died physically was, it is finished. It was a perfect tense of teleo, which means that it's been finished in the past with results that go on forever. To utilize that terminology, Jesus would have to mean that at that point in time, everything for our salvation was already accomplished before he died physically. When was it accomplished? During those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God the Father poured out upon the Son every single sin in human history. It was during that time that God covered the earth in darkness so man would not see the misery. If you can imagine the greatest suffering you've ever thought about, that's nothing compared to what Christ went through on the cross when He paid for your sins and my sins. The Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So that is the object of our faith, that Jesus Christ died on the cross according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's how Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Sanctifying faith, which is our spiritual life, spiritual growth faith, has as its object the propositions of Scripture, obedience to all of the various uh, mandates, principles, and precepts in the Word of God. John fourteen eleven. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. And what we see in this verse is that there's two bases for faith. The first is the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, believe me. And that's how some people come to Christ, is they just believe. They hear the gospel and they say, well, that makes perfect sense. I trust Christ as my Savior. Other people want a little evidence. They, you have to ask questions, answer some of their questions. You have to help them think through some issues. It may take 5, 10, 15 years of dialogue before the Holy Spirit finally convinces them of the truth of the gospel. But some come immediately on the basis of the authority of Scripture, and others believe on account of the works themselves. Now, notice Jesus isn't like a lot of modern Christians. See, there's a lot of modern Christians who think that somehow if you believe on the basis of the miracles that Jesus performed, the signs that He performed, that it's not a real saving faith. If you hold your place here and go back to the second chapter of John, Jesus performs the miracle at the beginning of the chapter at the wedding of the Cana of Galilee. And then the next event takes place in the temple in verse 12 when he goes into the temple and sees the money changers and he drives them out. And we studied that in detail. And if you remember, this shows that Jesus is not the wimpy, whiny Jesus that everybody portrays, but that he... These were heavy oak tables. He picks them up and he throws them out of the door, hauls them down the hallway, down the corridor, out to the gate, throws them out of the temple precinct. He picks the people up bodily and drives them out. It shows his physical power and strength in his humanity. He's not doing it out of his deity. He's doing it in his humanity. 
And then the Jews, of course, question him for a sign in verse 18. And then we get down to verse 23. Verse 23 summarizes the events, and John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, behold, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. And then the next verse, he says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody who's going to go to this passage and say, See, they weren't saved. They believed, but it wasn't saving faith. Because if it was saving faith, Jesus would have trusted them. Now, I want to remind you that the assumption there is that if somebody is a true believer, that they're trustworthy. Now, if you believe that, then I've got a few real estate deals that we can talk about. Just because you're a believer does not mean you've lost your sin nature and does not mean that now you're always going to be a person of integrity automatically. That just doesn't happen. So this is a complete distortion of the text. And what they always say is that the reason they, it wasn't saving faith is because it was faith based on miracles. And that's just an inadequate base. You just have to believe Jesus. But you see, John wrote the gospel. Why? Why did John write the gospel? These are written. These what? If you look at the previous verse in John twenty thirty, he says, these signs. Because in the previous verse he said, Jesus did many more signs. He said, but these are written. These signs are written that you might believe. So John writes the gospel and specifically gives us the signs that Jesus did so that people will come to saving faith. So it just shows that how superficial many people can be because we can't understand why somebody can be saved and live like the devil. Now, Jesus says you can come to faith. It's two ways. Either on my authority, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So again, we see the connection between the words and the works. And then in verse 12, we come to an interesting passage that we have to take apart. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the words that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do. Now, how did prayer get into this? That's an interesting question. Well, first of all, we have to properly understand verse 12. This brings up the whole issue of interpretation versus application. Most people who are productions of American 20th century pragmatism want to jump right over interpretation and go into application. They read it and they say, well, what does that mean to me? And then they just sort of grab in the air anything they want to to apply it. Now, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, who's he talking to? Who is he talking with? He is talking to the 11 disciples that are left in the upper room. He's not talking to you. He's not talking to me. That was this, he said this 2,000 years ago. Now, the thing is, we have a tendency to go to these passages, especially the prayer verses in the next two verses, and apply them to ourselves. And I think that's legitimate. But first of all, we have to interpret the passage and say, who is Jesus talking to here? Is he talking to every believer in the church age, or is he just talking to the disciples? Another way of putting it is, is he talking to the eleven, or is he talking through the eleven to the church? I think that... He is just talking to the eleven. 
Interpretation asks the question, what does the author intend to communicate by this proposition, by this statement? Application asks the question, how does that apply to my thinking and my actions? First thing we have to do is correctly interpret this particular verse. Jesus says, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Now, what does he mean by works? It's very clear from this passage and from other passages that what he is speaking of here is miracles. This is parallel to John 10, 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Notice again, Jesus says it's fine to believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So from John 10, 37 and 38, it's clear that we're talking about miracles here. The miracles that Jesus performed. In John 5, 19, Jesus said... Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So he identifies the two together. And then in John 14:12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, Shall he do also greater works? Well, what are these greater works? They are greater in extent. They are not greater in quantity. They are greater in, I mean, excuse me, they are greater in quantity. You will do more. But they are not greater. Second Corinthians 12, 12, we're told that the signs of a true apostle, that may be hard for you to read, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the credentials, the calling card of the apostles, how you knew they were apostles, is because of the miracles they performed, the signs, the wonders, and the miracles. This is what Jesus is talking about. He is talking to them as apostles that you will do greater miracles. You will do more miracles. Think about the miracles of Peter and John, the miracles of Paul. You will do more miracles than I did. I was only had, only had a ministry for three years. You're going to have ministry for the remainder of your life. You will do many more miracles than I do. This is not a passage for church-age believers by means of interpretation. And then in verse 13, because we're talking about performing miracles, oh, furthermore, another passage to go to is Hebrews 2.4, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we see that in the early church, the credentials were based upon the works, the miracles that the apostles did. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, he then says, that will I do. Well, what's, he, what's the context? The context is performing the miracles. He's not talking about general prayer to believers throughout the church age. Now, we can take this by means of application 
and relate it because we have uh, supporting Scripture to do so. See, that's the important thing. The principle of John 14, 13, and 14 is valid for application. Why? We look over in uh, uh, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. So there is our prayer promise that is directed to every church-age believer. But John 14, 13, and 14, in interpretation, is directed to the apostles and their performance of miracles, not to every church-age believer. Although we can then, having understood the interpretation, derive application from it in terms of prayer. Then we come to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Where does this come from? He wants to keep us on target, on task. We're talking about love, what it means to love as Christ loved us. What it means to love as Christ loved us is to keep the commandments. What did Jesus do? I did what the Father said to do. I am the. He, it was. I spoke the words did not originate with me. Ultimately, they originate from the Father. I fulfilled the Father's mandates. My words were the result of the Father's works, the Father's command. So he's bringing this in. He's weaving this theme in now that love, this new love that we have, that we are to exemplify as believers, is related to obedience to the Word of God. Now, that's not legalism. Legalism is saying that somehow my obedience to the Word of God impresses God and gains God's approval and is the basis for blessing. And that's false. The spiritual life is based on grace by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is, But we obey as a result of what God did for us, not to get God to do something for us. It is a result of our love. How do we love God? How do we get to know Him? By learning the Word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then verse 16, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another, and the word here in the Greek is alas, which means another of the same kind. I will give you another helper that he, this new helper, may be with you forever. So he is going to permanently give the Holy Spirit in the church age. In the Old Testament they had the Holy Spirit, but it was temporary. And only a very few had the Old Testament. I call it the endowment of the Holy Spirit. It was a temporary empowerment given that could be taken away, and only leaders in the nation Israel received it. Leaders such as Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the craftsmen who built all of the furniture for the tabernacle, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, not in them, but upon them, to give them the wisdom they needed in order to, to carry out their task. Then you had the various judges, and you have different prepositions. The Holy Spirit comes on them and to them. But they are, they are leaders and the Holy Spirit comes and goes. Saul had the Holy Spirit and lost the Holy Spirit because of his carnality. David had the Holy Spirit but prayed that God would not take the Holy Spirit from him because of his sin as he had done with Saul. And so you see that it's only a few. It's the prophets, the priests, the kings, the leaders of the nation. So I don't think there were more than a hundred people in the entire Old Testament 
who had a ministry of the Holy Spirit like this, and it wasn't for spirituality, it wasn't for spiritual growth, it was for wisdom in performing their task as a leader in the nation Israel. Now, Jesus says he will be with you forever. That's, it's going to be something different. Now, every believer will have the Holy Spirit. Not only with you, but then he says in verse 17, that is the spirit of truth. This is the spirit of doctrine, the spirit who teaches truth. That's the emphasis here. He is so closely connected with the truth of Scripture that he is called the spirit of truth, whom the world, that is the unsaved, cannot receive, receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. Now, the prepositions here are important. There you have para, which indicates with or alongside or an accompaniment with. That's the Old Testament concept of endowment. He abides with you, and then you have future tense. He will be in you. So it's a prophecy here of the first coming, the first advent of the Holy Spirit. First advent of the Holy Spirit took place on Pentecost. Second advent of the Holy Spirit is going to come during the uh, fulfillment of the new covenant blessings in Israel with the second coming of Christ in the Messianic kingdom. So this is a prophecy here that the Holy Spirit will be in you and that's fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And from that point on, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. No, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you something. You've got the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will return. He's reiterating that theme from 14.1. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. Why not? He's going to be crucified and he's going to go into the grave. I will, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. And this is, of course, a reference to the resurrection that I will be raised from the dead. And you will see me again in three days and three nights. I will be back. And because I live, because I have victory over death, 1 Corinthians 15, you will have victory over death. You shall live also. Verse 20, in that day you shall know that I am in my Father. In what day? The day when you see me resurrected from the grave. Then you will know. Now you believe it, but then it will be sight. Now it is faith. Then it's sight. That's the difference. Then when you see me in my resurrection body, you will have visible proof before you that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And I wish I had time to dwell on this, but notice it says, I am in the Father, you are in me, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We are all indwelt, not only by God the Holy Spirit, but by God the Son. And we'll also see in this passage that we're indwelt by God the Father. And it just amazes me how people can think that Christians can be demon-possessed when we are indwelt by the, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then he wraps it up in verse 21. Ties all of these themes together. He who has my commandments, that's every single believer who has the completed canon of Scripture, the New Testament. He who has my commandments and keeps them, that is obedience, application of doctrine. But before you apply it, you have to know it. Before you know it, you have to learn it. You have to be in Bible class. You have to learn it over and over and over again. You have to saturate your mind. We all have to do that. That's how we relearn. We're in a process of being re-educated in the spiritual life according to the principles of God's Word. So we have to saturate our thinking with the Word of God. He who has my commandments and keeps them, applies them, he it is who loves me. 
How do you know if you love God? It is directly related to the, your degree of obedience to the principles in God's Word. It doesn't have anything to do with the warm fuzzies you feel when you're singing your favorite hymn. It has to do with application of doctrine in your life. And notice the, impl- the results of this. He says, He who loves me shall be loved by my Father. So there is an increased awareness of God's personal love for us as believers And I will love him, an increased manifestation of Jesus' love for us, and notice, will disclose myself to him. In other words, you you come to Christ, you come to the cross, and you understand a small amount of doctrine. Now, if you don't learn and apply that, assimilate that, you 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 probably have many other questions, but you'll never get those answered unless you start applying what you're learning. And with this promise is saying you learn that and you apply it, then in that process, God is going to, and Jesus Christ is going to further illuminate your thinking and disclose Himself to you through His Word. It's a process to whom much is given, much is expected. He gives you a little. If you use it, He will give you more and you will understand more and grow. He's not going to give it all to us at one time. It depends on what we do with it. So if you've been given truth and you still have a lot of questions and you sit back and I've met people like this, well, you know, I need to know this, I need to know that. Just take it one step at a time and as you grow and as you apply what you learn and know, then other things will become clear in the process. Now, Jesus' answers to Philip was quite profound. Philip didn't know he was asking such a profound question. Judas is not Iscariot, verse 22, is then going to ask another question leading to the conclusion of this chapter and their time in the upper room. And we will come back to that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you so much for the clarity of your word, for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, and that you have not only given us everything related to salvation, but everything related to the spiritual life, and you have not left us alone but you have given us the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us, to teach us, and to help us to understand the things of your word. Indeed, you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have left nothing out. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity right now to do so. Right now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, you have the opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. The issue is not Church membership, the issue is not ritual, the issue is not works, the issue is not moral reformation of the life. Scripture makes it clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all that is necessary. It's a free gift. Jesus died on the cross as a payment for your sins and he offers that to you as a present. You can either accept it or reject it. If you accept it by faith alone, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then you have eternal life which can never be taken from you. If you reject it, the Scripture promises that there is eternal condemnation. Right now, in the privacy of your priesthood, all you have to do is let the Father know that you trust in Christ alone. He knows what's going on inside your soul, and He knows the faith. It's as simple as that. Father, we thank You for this time together, for the truths that we have learned. May we be all challenged by the things that we have learned to advance 
to spiritual maturity that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.